Turn with me to Ephesians 6, part 2, working our way through. Lord willing, we can stay on schedule. Uh, that is the goal. So, Ephesians chapter 6, uh, starting with verse 5. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Thank you. And you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also in heaven, your own master is also in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Finally, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Lord, we just pray right now that we would be strong in you and the power of your might. Lord, as we look at authority this morning, may we submit to your authority and everything else will fall in place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. We ask that your spirit would speak, remove every distraction, Lord, remove it from this place that we would hear from you, be fed by you, and be changed by you. In Jesus' name we ask this, amen. Now, you cannot read this and other passages of Scripture without noticing. I want to bring something right out in the forefront here. You can't read this and not notice the condition of slavery and bond servants, which is somewhat, well, more than somewhat. It's very foreign to the way we live right now in Chesterfield, Virginia in 2017. Slavery and servanthood were conditions uh, where for either a period of time or for a lifetime, an individual did not have personal rights of their own. That sound like a good definition? And so, Either for a period of time, a block of time, in the next 10 years, someone would be a slave or a bondservant. Or born into slavery. Remember, Israel was in slavery for a few hundred years there in Egypt. Born into slavery or a period of time. That just doesn't sound like a good way to live life, does it? Doesn't seem fair, does it? Doesn't seem just. Of course not. Now, but let's understand, and again, I want to look at this first before we get into the, the application of authority that we're going to talk about this morning. But let's understand that when God created Adam and Eve, slavery, bond servants, indentured servants, wars, sickness, disease, unfair circumstances, they were not part of the original paradise. Would you agree with that? None of that was part of the Garden of Eden. Sin brought it about, as it likewise brought about human struggles that we still see today for power, for position, and financial means. Some estimates indicate that there were as many as 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. 60 million. As many as one-third of the population of a city the size of Ephesus could have been slaves. One-third. Slavery in Roman times, though, it was not race-based. Understand that in the Roman time, the Roman Empire was a multicultural society. It was not race-based slavery. 
Um, now, that doesn't make it a good thing. I'm just saying that understand that. People of all different skin tones and cultural origins throughout the, African, uh, uh, the continent of Africa, throughout Asia, throughout Europe, all across the empire had slaves and servants. And again, that doesn't make it right, but it was radically different than the form of slavery that formed here in the southern United States in our country's history, radically different in that respect. In Paul's day, there were slaves that were horribly treated, and there were also slaves that lived really good lives of plenty. They were like members of the family. Uh, they had highly skilled jobs. They had equitable pay, even property ownership. So it really, uh, it really ran the gamut in uh, how slaves were treated. It really depended on who uh, your master was. And Paul does not address the issue of slavery or bonded servants, because they're different. He doesn't address that specifically. Rather, he speaks to the reality of the existence of it in the Roman Empire, but not just the Roman Empire, centuries well before the Roman Empire, all the way back to Egypt and other places where slavery already existed, servants existed, bond servants, all these things. What Paul essentially lays out is something, understand what we just read, what Paul essentially lays out is something that would ultimately dissolve the construct of slavery if it was followed. It would dissolve the construct of slavery, though not necessarily bond servants. Why do I say that? Well, historically, bonding oneself has always been a means to pay something off in labor. You ever seen the movie say, I'll wash dishes if I have to, right? To pay off this debt or something like that. So bonding oneself has been used since the dawn of time in lieu of money. If you didn't have money, say, well, I can work two or three days and pay this off. Today, many people are effectively bond servants to Ford Motor Credit, GMC Credit, Citibank, Capital One, and the list goes on. More people will become bonded servants in this season, right? Because they're going to take on a lot of debt. And so they will labor to pay off the creditors. It's, it's, it's a digital form of bond servant, if you will, pay off that debt load. Now, Paul doesn't address slavery specifically, but he addresses the abuses within slavery and the abuses of people because it's the care of people because people being made in the image of God, it's what God always cares about, how people are taken care of. It's always about the people to God. Amen? So Paul addresses the abuses that were taking place. Look for a quick second back at verse 9. We'll jump ahead for just a second because we want to understand this in context, and then we'll look at uh, the application that we're here to study this morning. And you masters do the same things. What? Same things. In other words, you masters, you have the same responsibility as the servants do in your behavior. And he says, giving up threatening. That's big. That might, that might not seem big to you first when you read this, but this is big in the context of history. Circle that, if you will, in your Bibles. Understand that in the Greco-Roman world, almost every other iteration of slavery, and every other iteration of slavery, not just the Greco-Roman world, but any other period, 
slavery or servants, their rights were always dictated by their masters. The master's discretion was how many rights you had. But Paul is inserting here an expectation of kindness. In other words, that no, no, God is telling you here is what must be done. Paul's inserting an expectation of kindness. He's inserting an expectation of dignity. He's inserting an expectation of respect, especially in light of when you look at verses 5 through 8. Because he says, new masters, you have the same accountability. Saying that they're, what uh, verse 5 to 8 is telling us that, so these servants, these slaves, these bond servants, would be submissive in their heart. And God is saying to the masters, but you have to be submissive in your heart as well. And this is unheard of language in a slave master world, which was normal in Rome, which was normal in Africa, which is nor- was normal in the Middle East in ancient times. No one had a qualm. I'm talking about leadership people. No one had a qualm in the ancient times with slavery. It was the world over. You won a war, you took them as slaves. It didn't matter if it was Assyrians or Babylonians or the ancient you know, dynasties in the Far East. It didn't matter. And Paul's saying, he all of a sudden says, no more threatening. Understand this. If threatening and, and intimidation are removed, you have a paradigm shift, don't you? Think about that. If threatening and intimidation are removed, then violence and humiliation are removed, isn't it? Threatening would be, that's just, he's saying you can't even verbally threat, much less, Paul said, all of that has to be removed. There's no more intimidation. There's no more violence. There's no more humiliating another human being. Here's the thing. Paul knows that real change in human behavior always starts in the heart. You can make laws. Did you know we have a lot of laws against certain things that people do anyway? Real change always starts in the human heart. And that's where Christ comes in. When he comes into the heart, he changes everything. So what Paul effectively lays out is this. If people love their neighbor as themselves and have sincere respect for one another, it's no longer us versus them, is it? Threatening's gone, intimidation's gone, kindness and love comes in. Slavery dissolves when hearts and motives become pure. When hearts and motives become pure, slavery would dissolve. Our collective need, think about it like this. This is practical app. Our collective need in this room, how many of you have passwords on your phone? Why? Because there's dishonest people. Our collective need for home security systems, changing passwords constantly. Does that get on anyone's nerves but me? If people would be honest, we wouldn't have to change passwords all the time. I wouldn't have to worry about it. Fraud protection services, those are fun to pay for, an added expense. To name just a few, these things would all go away if people would stop stealing. Do you know stealing's already illegal? Do you know God's already said you can't steal? And yet we have to do all these extra things and pay extra money because the hearts haven't changed yet. Hear this loud and clear. The church, the true church, the born-again believing church, was never to endorse 
and establish slavery, ever. That was demonic. The fact that some who claimed to be the church did such a thing was an abomination to God. It was. It is. The true church should, by its Christ-given nature, uproot slavery by teaching and treating fellow human beings with the same love and care that we ourselves would want to be treated with. That's what the true church would do. And, and thank the Lord, there's been godly believers all through time that have stood against these kind of things. I know that's the heart of Christ and the sincere heart of his church. Amen? I know that's the heart of our church. Okay, that was an addendum study. Now, I want to add one other little thing, too. I also think this could be here for another reason, in addition to Paul addressing uh, the historic situation and the fact that hearts have to change. And when they do, that construct of slavery d dissolves. Well, like I said, bond servants probably wouldn't because people still have debts, and sometimes if you don't have money, hey, I'll work, and that kind of thing. But that, those issues aside, and they are big issues, and, and God cares about them greatly, uh, there's another thing, too, for the church that may come into play. Jesus said, when you follow me, everyone's going to love you, right? Mm -mm. Our brothers and sisters around the world, many of them are captured and put into situations like Joseph. How'd you like to be Joseph? Doing everything the right way? All of a sudden, he's a slave. He has two options at that point. Either submit to the will of God and somehow get used. And oh, by the way, because he did, he becomes second in command of the world. Or he can say, I'm bitter, angry, and if anything, I'm going to try and kill my master and everybody else I possibly can. Right? And somehow, in the New Testament church, as our brothers and sisters are in dungeons in North Korea, in the Middle East, in Africa, they somehow have to love their enemies anyway. And I also believe that because Jesus calls us servants, doesn't he? that there's some element here, too, that God is reminding us that things could go horribly wrong and we're still going to have to represent him in really difficult situations. And we're not confronting that in America today, but our brothers and sisters in parts of Africa, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, they are confronting this. And they are thrust into at places where all of a sudden they're made slaves and they have to be a light anyway. They're not saying that it's right. We're not saying it's right, but yet they still have to be a light anyway. And by the way, if their masters get saved, we have another paradigm shift, right? So there's that element too, and Paul was aware of it. Paul was imprisoned on multiple occasions. He knew what it was like to have his freedom taken from him, and yet what did we see him doing in jail? Singing and praying. Because he was not just preaching it, he was practicing it. Now, the addendum aside, this addendum is especially important in our country where Satan has used various people over the last 200 plus years to perpetuate racism and slavery and all the while trying to attribute it to God rather than Satan who really should get the credit. And, you know, Satan lives to stir up pain. He lives to stir up hatred. The painful past in our country is why the term master immediately has a negative connotation for some people, and rightly so. But understand, don't let people who have distorted a word mess it up in this context. You know Jesus is our master. Are you okay with that? 
I am. Jesus is our master. Why? Because he can be trusted. He will not, ab- he will not abuse us. He's a good and faithful and compassionate master. The disciples came to him, often called him master. They used that term a lot with him. It struck me the other night when I was watching a Star Wars movie. How often time master is used, Master Yoda. Next time you watch it, watch how many times master is used in a positive context. And no one ever has a problem with it. Why? Because there is such thing as a really good master, and it's Jesus. And there's such thing as an evil master. By the way, I think the emperor is the evil master in that thing, right? You know, the, the Sith lords. And I'm not trying to get into a Star Wars discussion. I'm just I'm saying our contemporary culture, it struck me because I'm studying this word, and I'm studying this text, and then I see it, and I was like, wow, we're still using it in a positive way because it's understood that there actually can be noble leaders, and Jesus is the noble master, the compassionate master. But the remainder of our time in this study this morning, we'll be looking at this uh, through the lens of biblical authority. You see the title up on the screen, Appreciating Authority. And it all starts with Jesus. And uh, God, I don't know how I got to Hardest Mission. But anyway, we got there. Um, God's establishment of authority is important And how we respond to it is more important. How do we respond to authority? And these verses, they have very applicable relevance to things like employer, employee, coach, and player, teacher, and student. Would you agree in all those relationships, someone's in charge and someone has to say yes? Right. We accept those are all master-servant relationships in the truest sense of it. When it's messed up and it's turned into something ugly, we then distort the term. But when you look at coach, player, teacher, student, we don't look at that as like, oh, this is just wrong. Because it's not. We have to have biblical authority. And there's many other roles where authority is on one hand and the role of submitting or following is on the other. So we'll look at three things here this morning in our time. We'll do our best to move through. And the first, I think I already had up there. I already covered that. Let's look at this heart of submission. If you're taking notes, even if you're not taking notes, this is what we're going to look at first, heart of submission. Um, The first point, if you're taking notes, I've got three under this heart of submission that we'll look at. The first one, you don't have to memorize it. Wherever God has placed authority, we're called to obedience. So again, we're looking at this more now as leader-follower. Leader-follower. All of us are called to learn to lead, but we're also called first to follow. Jesus said what? Follow me. Follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, this obedience that we're called to, it's not when we feel like obeying, but as we saw last week in verse 2, as Paul directed to children, we obey. Why? Because it's right. God says it's right. He wants obedient hearts. He wants hearts that respond with obedience. By the way, if someone is in authority... According to the flesh. That's what it says here. It says, um, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Because this is straight applicable to just authority positions of all kinds. According to the flesh, what does that mean? Let's understand that according to the flesh means they may not be saved. They might not be saved. Are all of your bosses at work saved? 
Are all of your managers saved? Are all the police officers you meet saved? Are all the politicians saved? Well, you know that's not the case, right? So they may not be a believer. They may not ascribe to the Lord's authority, and yet they are representing God's authority in our lives. Look what it says. It says, um, we're to obey them, trembling in sincerity of heart, as to Christ. So someone unsaved, we're to obey them as to Christ. That seems odd, right? They're not, they don't have the same heart of God. They don't even believe in God in some cases. But if your boss says, all right, here's the deal. We're eliminating casual Friday attire. We can't say, oh, no, you don't. You're not, you're not taking that away from me. Uh, I'm saying no because God looks at the heart. He doesn't look what we wear outside. Just tell that to your boss. Go ahead. God looked at the heart. So I've, I've said, no, you have been rejected with this change. We are not taking Casual Friday away. Furthermore, Casual Friday is good for everyone's morale, and it's really good for mine. Right? Now, you can say that. might not help you in your career ladder. Now, but it's a different story if your boss were to say, from now on, we are going to lie to our customers and clients. I want all of you to practice these lies so we can deceive. Well, that you're not told to honor. You're not told to follow that. You see the difference? If it's something like what you're supposed to wear, we're supposed to submit. If it's something like, you know, I, I ask our uh, our men that give announcements, I ask them to wear a collared shirt. You might have noticed that you've never seen our guys come up here in a T-shirt. I don't have anything against T-shirts. Worship guys love T-shirts. They think it's you know, the way to go and all that stuff. And, but I've asked when we, whoever's doing announcements, wear a collared shirt. If God ever tells me the jeans got to go, then I have to get rid of them too. It's just the way it is. We have to be a submissive in our heart. Now, if it is a sin that we're asked to do, we can respectfully take a stand there. But if it's not a sin, we're to be submissive, and God has placed that authority over us. God's placed authority over us to learn a couple of things, but among them that we're not in control of all things. God said, you're not in control of everything, and you're going to have to learn to say, yes, I will submit to that. It comes in every aspect of life. We learn. The older you get, you really learn you're not in control. You start to be more okay with that. Number two... Number two, our obedience is to be with the right heart and unto the Lord. Looking at what Paul wrote and what we know to be the case from Jesus' own teaching, the picture in our mind needs to be that of Jesus standing right there, observing our work, observing the attitude that's in our hearts, that Jesus, by the way, you know he can look right inside to our heart. He doesn't need to hear the words we say. He looks right into our heart and he sees, no, no, I, I heard you say yes, but in your heart I saw a lot of no. Of course, related to any and all areas of authority, Jesus is there. He is observing what we're doing, how we're doing it, our attitude in doing it, or if we're doing it at all. Look at the characteristics that Paul points out. Points out. He says here, uh, with Fear and trembling. Obey with fear and trembling. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to obey with fear and trembling? Paul uses the same words in Philippians 2, verse 12, where he says that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You ever read that verse? We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, this phrase is not speaking of cowering 
in fear and shaking. Rather, it speaks to having an awe, a respect for God's holiness, right? When we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it's a respect for God's holiness, an awe for his holiness. In other words, holiness is to be lived out in our lives as holy believers, not holier-than-thou believers, but holy and obedient believers. And Paul also mentions sincerity. Now, the same thing, we would have respect for those in authority. We'd have respect for them. Amen? Paul also mentions sincerity. Uh, This isn't to gain an advantage, but simply because Jesus has commanded us to be sincere. He goes on to say, not with eye service. What does that mean? Well, that means when people are watching, I work really hard and I say the right things. When people are watching, I grab a broom. When they're not watching, I'm watching my phone. Right? But when they're watching, I'm doing important stuff. When they're not, I'm slacking and complaining. Paul says, not with eye service. Not men pleasers. What does that mean? The, the old, I'll do whatever it takes to get recognition approach. Don't you love those folks? Whatever it takes to get recognition. Rather than simply working on the Lord and trusting that God will bring recognition for good work. We're reminded that we're all bond servants in the spiritual realm, where he says here in verse 6, but as bond servants of Christ. We're all bondservants. You say, I hate the term bondservants. Well, you're going to have to not hate it because we're all called into it. We've all been bonded into service to Jesus, and the block of time is till our last breath. Well, even beyond that, in eternity, we'll still be his servants. So we're all bondservants in the spiritual realm. We've all been purchased by the blood of Jesus. He bought us with a price. He bought us. And now we serve him with our life, with our time, our talent, our treasure. So if he says that our work and our obedience is unto him, it's settled. And we want to please him in the doing of that work. We're to remember that all of our effort, all of our obedience, all of our submission in this life is ultimately to do what? To accomplish the will of God. You know, when the lady's thing got moved, that, you know, dates are not so big deal to God. You know, he's not bound by time. Last Friday, he was not messed up with his schedule. It didn't change anything from his eternity. He didn't say, wow, what am I going to do? The schedule's messed up. The journey of our life is the destination. That all the things he allows, is all, that's the stuff he's teaching us. It's the working it out. That he's doing, saying these things and how you respond to it, your submission, your obedience, as long as it's accomplishing my will, that is what I intended all along in your life. Cheerful and sincere obedience is always the will of God. It's not something we need to pray over. Lord, am I to be cheerful in my obedience? You don't need to pray about that. You can pray to do it, but not pray, should I do it? Pray and help doing it, but not, is this something you want me to do? Like, Lord, I'm praying, do you really want me to pray? You don't have to pray about that. The Bible already says pray without ceasing. You can pray to help be more in tune with God in prayer, but you don't have to pray, should I pray? 
Most people that don't pray wouldn't pray that prayer. But anyway, you get the idea. It's something we simply are to do. Lord, I want to work unto you, and I'm doing that. I'm going to work properly to the people you put in authority in my life. Now, the last note here under this heart of submission invokes our present service, but with a focus on the future. He says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, verse 8, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Our future, someday, if we know the Lord is our Lord and Savior, we will all see Jesus face to face. That sometimes should be a real eye-opener to get back to our priorities, seek ye first the kingdom of God, but also it should be comforting. No, someday you're going to meet Jesus face to face. I can't wait. The cares of this world, I'm done with them. I'd much rather go home to be with Jesus. If Jesus would come back tonight, I would take it over Christmas. I'd take it over my team, went in their bowl game, and all the other nonsense that's coming up. The way we submit and serve says a lot about how much we truly believe that we're going to see Jesus face to face. The way we submit and serve says a lot about whether we really believe that. You show me a person that serves cheerfully, with sincerity, with a good heart, and I'll show you a person that is ready to meet Jesus. You show me a person that's complaining, cutting corners, angry, rebellious, I'm not going to listen to them. They're not ready to meet Jesus, and they don't really believe, and they need to. Now, the last point here under this heart of submission, whoa, too fast. The obedience of our life will someday be rewarded, and the fact is that's a good thing because we don't always get rewarded here on this earth, do we? You can be obedient and faithful and still get slighted. But when you meet Jesus face to face, he won't slight us. He will say, faithful servant, here's the rewards. I've been watching your service. Now think about this. You not only can get slighted in this world for doing good, it can be worse than that. You guys remember King David? Before he became king, but he was already anointed to be king, he was doing his best to serve the King Saul. And as he served King Saul... David was faithfully, obediently, skillfully, and respectfully serving King Saul. What did he get for it? He got a spear thrown at him. There's a good boss, right? Has your boss done that yet? <laughs> he got a spear thrown at him. Now, I'd say, maybe not a spear, but I've, I've gotten some verbal spears thrown at me in a meeting that was embarrassing. And at that point, you got a lot of bitterness riding home. You're like, I'm quitting this job. That's it. I'm done here. But if you really know the Lord, sometimes God will speak to you and say, I endured worse than that. I was spit on, and I was doing everything right. My servant David, he was submissive. He, David could have killed Saul on a couple of occasions and still didn't, and he could have said, and this was the Lord because I was anointed to be king, and therefore it's the right thing to do. But no, he submitted to the will of God and said, in God's timing, he'll flip the script. God may want to flip the script in your life, but you're going to have to wait for his timing. I'm going to have to wait for his timing. We don't like waiting, do we? Christmas lines are already driving me nuts, right? We don't like waiting, but we're going to have to wait. You know, David had to say, Lord, how's that for appreciation? I was thought I'd get a promotion. Instead, I, I had a spear go whizzing by my ear. 
But when we finally meet Jesus, he will reward all the good we've done in him. Look what it says. It says whatever good anyone's done, He goes on saying, you masters, um, we'll, we'll get to that in a second, but from the Lord, whether he's slave or free, it's what we do in the Lord that he's going to reward. Things we've done by the work of the Spirit, things we've done with the right motive, whether we're a slave or whether we're free. You know, it's, you know I love some of our brothers and sisters that might spend an entire lifetime in the Middle East or in Southeast Asia or in North Korea, and never have an ounce of freedom are going to be rewarded tenfold more than you and me in heaven. And they deserve it. Like, I'm glad they'll get more because they have suffered greatly for the name of Jesus and they've done it unto him. I, I, I don't even, I don't think remotely I deserve even close to what they would get. But God's going to fix and balance everything out, isn't he? And that's good because we need a lot of things fixed and balanced out in this world. And God's going to do that. Now, the second thing we look at here in verse 9, we looked at it briefly as it related to the context uh, of the day. But in you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your master, is that capitalized in your Bible? It should be. That's Jesus. It should be capitalized. Your master, Jesus, also in heaven. Of course, we know that that's his throne. And there is no partiality with him. Aren't you glad Jesus is impartial? Because the world is very partial, very prejudiced, very biased. It's not an impartial world. If you've ever been passed over for a job, you could read through the, the, the lines and say, there was some partiality going on here. I was talking to someone the other day that was competing for a job, and you know, you're not supposed to be able to exclude someone based on age, but guess what? It happens a lot, right? They'll never say it. They'll, they'll sometimes make a decision based on age or race or this or that or the way you look. They're not going to tell you that, but God knows the heart. But Jesus is not like that. He's impartial. He saved all of us in spite of our sin and disobedience and rebellion. We're to lead, though, if God's put you in any remote form of leadership, and if you're a parent, it's not remote, you have a direct form of leadership. We're to lead like Jesus is observing us, like he's watching our leadership, because he is, right? He's watching how, he's watching how I lead as a husband, as a father, as a pastor. He's watching. So many leaders, isn't it sad, we see this, so many leaders lead as if, they will never give an account for their behavior. But they're going to give an account someday, aren't they? We see it in politics. We see it in business. And sadly, we even see it in some church leaders. They lead as if there's never going to be any account. There will be. The best leaders treat people in such a way that they inspire loyalty. They inspire hard work. They inspire effort. Where he says here, masters give up <coughs> threatening if you have to threaten people to lead them, you're not much of a leader. If you have to threaten people to lead them, you're not much of a leader. And by the way, leaders need to know who they're leading. 
Integrity and sincerity should always be a constant. But if you are in leadership, you can't lead 10-year-olds the same way as you lead 40-year-olds. God will give you wisdom. There has to be an age appropriation of how to understand and experience. Do they have a lot of experience? The Bible even told young Timothy as a pastor, be careful how you deal with older men. Leading, God has to give you, you don't lead a ladies group the exact same way you lead a men's group. Right? And you definitely don't need to lead a men's group the exact same way you lead a ladies group. We have never uh, done crafts as men. Never. <laughs> that I'm aware of. We've never said, bring some bows and some uh, pink stuff, and we're going to cut, and we're going to craft. We've never done it. We're still trying to get in touch with our inner selves and stuff like that, but no, we're not doing that. It's called, <laughs> but God gives leaders are to have situational awareness. Aren't you glad when you see leaders that have situational awareness? At times at CCR, we've inspired and motivated teen boys here with tacos and pizza and donuts. But that doesn't work with everyone else. I can't motivate someone who is a little further in life with a taco, right? <laughs> and by the way, we still instill in the teens why they're doing the work in the first place. We don't just, hey, here's a taco. Here's why we're doing it. But Again, we have to understand who our audience is. And Jesus, well, we're all part of his audience, aren't we? But he's a true leader. He's our leader. He's our ruler. He's our shepherd. His name is Jesus, and he leads us beside still waters, doesn't he? Aren't you glad you have a leader that leads you beside still waters? We have other leaders that are just roughing up the waters. Jesus leads us beside still waters. He cares for his flock. He doesn't yell at his flock. He doesn't verbally abuse his flock. Jesus has never once verbally abused me or you. Not once. We know his voice, don't we? The voice of a leader we are glad to say master to. Amen? The second observation here. We're lead like Jesus observing the second observation is our ruler is impartial he's not jesus is not enamored with celebrities isn't that great jesus is not watching well he sees it but he's not following anyone's twitter feed he's not enamored with celebrities i mean he knows what they're saying and that will be by the way, everything we say and think will someday be brought before us at the end of the age. But he's not following like, oh, I, I'm waiting on their every word. He's not enamored with celebrities or CEOs or people with political power. Jesus doesn't favor rich people over poor people. He looks at the character and the content of the heart, doesn't he? That's what Jesus looks at. If you're a leader... You're called to be impartial. You even got to be impartial in the family. This was a mistake that Jacob made, right? And Joseph was an awesome kid, but you can't show partiality. It really causes problems. Even as a parent, you cannot show impartiality. When you say, I love you all equally, you better mean it. You can't be impartial. You got to be impartial. And if you're in the business world or healthcare profession or something. It's not the old boy network. Leaders are to place people in roles 
based on their responsibility, based on their character, and based on the necessary skills and abilities that are needed for the position. That's what a leader should look for, not, well, you're really cool and you like the same hobbies I like. But that happens in the world. You better believe it happens. I was in corporate America for 16, 17 years. I saw, saw all these things that HR says are, you know, but there's ways around stuff. Like, you see all the stuff coming out in the news? You don't think HR had told people you're not allowed to do sexual harassment? It's been in every handbook forever. But some people skirt everything, don't they? They're not good leaders, but they're not good followers either. Jesus is impartial, though, and we're to be impartial. By the way, the reason why I believe the real church, the true church, is the most diverse organization on planet Earth is because Jesus is impartial. He chooses from every tribe, nation, tongue, skin color. Did you know that the church is exploding in Asia, in the Middle East, and in Africa? You know, you won't hear people say that. They'll say, uh, isn't uh, the church a European thing? No, Europe is declining way down. The true church is exploding in the four corners of the world because Jesus is impartially calling all men to repentance, no matter where they live. Saints in every part of the world. We have an impartial leader and an impartial Savior. He'll, he'll redeem anybody that will come to him. He attracts everyone into his family because he wants everyone in his family. The reason why some people don't attract other people is they don't really want other people, right? Jesus attracts everybody because he wants everybody. And real leaders that are impartial will attract not just people that look and act like them, but they'll attract a wide range because they'll have the heart of God. The last thing we want to look at this morning is the power connection. Now, verse 10 is a connecting verse. It connects back to the previous verses, but it launches us forward to this great section of Scripture that we will close Ephesians with, and that's called the whole armor of God. You guys have probably studied this before. Kids in many Sunday school classes, they make the little cutouts of the helmet and the sword and the shield, and, and they're like, what's a girdle and all that stuff? And so they, they do these things. But this next section, which is so important for us in spiritual warfare, this verse 10 connects the previous to the next passage. And that's why I wanted to read it today, and we'll reread it as we jump into the whole armor of God. But let's reread verse 10 one more time. And look at it as a, a rearview mirror connecting all the other points that Paul has already made in the book of Ephesians and what he's about to say in verses 11 through verse 17 and 18. Finally, my brethren. I have in my Bible parentheses around finally. What? Finally. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. The power connection. What do I mean by that? The first thing here, spiritual power always starts with obedience. Finally, Paul's like, finally. I heard this the other day, and it's so true. I heard this, another pastor was talking about her, and uh, this was the point. Obedience brings life, but performance brings death. Say, what's the connection here? I'll get to it. Obedience brings life, but performance brings death. You see, obedience is trust, but performance is trying to make everything work. You see the difference? 
if Peter gets out of the boat, like I mentioned last week, and starts walking on water, he's trusting that Jesus will help him walk on water. If Peter says, I'm going to try and walk on water, I'm going to try and figure out how this works, failure. God's not looking for us to perform, but to simply believe and obey. And we then we leave the results up to him, right? We leave the results up. Lord, I'm not going to try and figure out what pleased you. I'm going to simply put into practice what you said for me to do. Just, just do those things. Love your neighbor. How do you do that? Well, smile and say hi. And let God start those little things. That's a great place to start. What's that going to do? Well, you haven't been doing it before. Start doing it. Start putting the little things into practice. You're going to have to perform. By the way, performance puts a lot of pressure on us, doesn't it? Obedience puts the pressure on Jesus. We're told to put our burdens on him. He can handle them, can't he? The older I get, the worse I get at handling pressure. Yeah, I was 18 in high school. I'd get free throw line, no nerves whatsoever. Older I get, pressure builds because you realize that life is way more fragile when you're older than when you're young. Yeah. You don't think you could ever get hurt when you're young. Older life, you realize, man, lots of things can damage me. Mind, body, spirit. And so we have to say, Lord, I'm not trying to perform anything. I'm not trying to hold everything down. I'm just trying to obey you and leave the rest up to you. Know for certain, we will never meet a mighty man or woman of God who did not first obey. Someone who disobeys authority or abuses authority is by no means under God's authority. They're not. I mentioned King Saul earlier. Saul was abusive in his authority. He first disobeyed the commands of Samuel, and hence the Lord. So none of God's spirit was on Saul. Saul was just doing it all himself. All of his strength was in himself. Brother and sister, is all your strength right now in you? Or is it in the Lord? You're trying to manage life on your own, not obeying what he's asked you to do, the small things first, then all your strength is currently in yourself. See, Saul was self-willed, and he was self-led, and he thought he was self-made, which brought him into a place of intense pride, anger. These are all things that Saul manifests in his life. Depression, frustration, anxiety, paranoia, Hatred and envy. What a lovely way to live. That's, that's how Saul ended living the latter part of his life because he was convinced that he had to make it all work. He had to fix every problem, and he had to do it his own way. Well, God said, don't do it this way. Well, that won't work. So I'm gonna, I kept these animals alive, and I kept this over here because uh, you know, giving those things to you was going to mess up the storehouse that we needed for, to make things work. And God may be asking you to say, hey, you need to start giving of your time, your talent, and your treasure. Well, if I do that, then we won't survive. God says, well, then you're not trusting me. You're trusting you. And there's no obedience there. And there's no life there. Now you're trying to perform and make it work and still speak with Christianese. Understand that not every emotional state that we ever encounter is sin. So you can have rough patches. That, that doesn't always mean that you're in sin. doesn't mean it's always sin. And in some cases, that is true. But not Saul's case. Saul was due to sin. He was due to disobedience. But the real way out of weakness, the real way out of the weakness of our flesh, 
and any sin or despair that might you, you might have here this morning is to retrace the simple steps and commands that Jesus has already given. Go back to the basics. There's power in the basics. There's power in the basics. Saying, Lord, forgive me. I tried to retake control. I'm going to simply obey. You want me at church on Sundays? I thought that didn't matter anymore. It still matters to God. I, I just thought I could go several days without praying. No, you've got to pray. I just need your help, Lord. God says, I was waiting for you to ask. You see, finally here, when Paul says finally, it means something along these lines. Paul's saying, when he says finally, you can also put in a, a phrase like this. Paul's saying, assuming you were already being obedient to God, right? Assuming you're already being obedient to God, let's move on to power in your life. That's what he's about to get to. Assuming you're doing the small things first, now you can move on to power. Right? You can move on to walking in power. That's our last point of the morning. True strength is always found in Christ. Some of the strongest people I have ever met have very little physical strength. Physical strength is never impressive to God. Little Ladies in the Bible have prayed down kingdoms. Physical strength. Goliath had that. Saul had it. They both crumbled. I, and, and this is coming from someone who has a great respect. I love football. When I see someone runs a 4-3 and they're 6-foot-4, 2-foot, I'm in awe. I'm like, why not me? Why not me, Lord? God's like, because that's a vapor. I, for a while, Samson could smoke anybody. And God says he, he started believing in himself. Eyes gone, strength gone, hair gone. But for a while, he had it all, didn't he? God says, don't look at that stuff. Some of the weakest people I've ever met are muscle-bound people. Not, God's not, they're fast, they're strong, they're fit, but they have no walk with Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that. I've seen them both. I've seen weak people who are strong. I've seen weak people that are weak. I've seen strong people that are strong, strong people that are weak. It, God, whatever your makeup is, God is not caring about the outside in that sense. There's no prerequisite one way or the other. The point is that the strength God wants us to have is always found in Christ. This is the strength to face the storms of life but not give up. This is the strength not to return to the world. This is the strength not to become bitter. This is the strength not to become apathetic. The strength not to become cold. This is the strength to care for people when other people don't care for people. This is the strength to love even when it's hard to love. To share the gospel even when your flesh doesn't want to share. Well, I don't want to say this, Lord. To pray even when you're really frustrated. You ever been there? You could read 10 magazines and can't get one prayer word out when you're frustrated, right? Because you're finding something else to occupy the mind. This is when you don't feel like praying or to be a good Samaritan and care for someone and give your time even when you're tired. Or to give to someone in need even when you have less in the checkbook than you really want to have right now. And God says, I still want you to give them 10 bucks, 20 bucks, do this. Lord, have you seen my checkbook? God's like, yeah, I've seen your checkbook. I know. I'll, 
all about your checkbook. Those are all areas of faith. And faith comes with being obedient to Christ and spending time with Christ. Then he changes our perspective. We start to believe, you know, it's really not me that makes all this work. You know, I have not thought once in this teaching, make sure my heart's beating. I just thought it now. But it wasn't in my notes. The Lord just reminded me, hey, by the way, you, the fact that you've survived another hour is me. So obey the little things, and the big things will fall into place. If we can, if we can and we will appreciate that all authority comes from Jesus, it all comes from him, if we fully submit to authority in our lives, if we humbly and respectfully submit to the areas of authority God's placed in our lives, and we serve him, and serve others in his spirit and his strength, brother and sister, our reward will be great. Great in peace and contentment. Isn't it great when, you know, it's one of the things that's nicer, hopefully, as you grow in the Lord and you get older. I don't really care about one Christmas gift that I may or may not get this year. Not one. I really don't. I don't care about that. Now, I'm glad to give them to other people, and I do more love to see other people smile and get a gift, don't you? You, you come to a place in life that you realize that stuff can't really make you happy anyway. Uh, the Lexus commercials crack me up. <laughs> the guy's running down and got a bow on an $80,000 car. I mean, who lives like this? I don't get it, but, you know, and, but that, that piece will only last through the month of January, Right? you're going to need the next version. Our contentment is in obedience to Christ, ministering to him, ministering to others, and not only will we be blessed now, but in heaven to come. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that you are a faithful master, that you have never abused us, but you love us with an everlasting love. Lord, we want to follow you, submit to others, and serve you and serve others in the same manner as you've shown us as the perfect leader. We want to grow in this respect as well. Even in this Christmas season, Lord, we, uh, we pray that we would exhibit your character and your heart in all these matters. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you